0: I invite you to turn to Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 1 to 17. I'll read the 17 verses of Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. How do you identify yourself? All of us identify ourselves in some ways superficially. You might call yourself an Asian American a Caucasian, an African-American, you might call yourself male or female. You might call yourself an old age pensioner, a young Turk. You might call yourself a, an athlete. You might call yourself a, a failed intellectual. Relatively superficial things, but we all have our labels of self-understanding, but of course, this becomes more complex today when there is such a demand for us to identify ourselves in acceptable ways. So, instead of identifying yourself as a male or female, you may identify yourself as binary. And your choice of self-identification may be deeply anti-authoritarian, that is, against the labeling that you've inherited, whether by family or culture or church or whatever, you you identify yourself in other ways and and provided you uh, use the labels and the ways of self-identification that the culture approves, you you, you are held up as a star for your self-identification. And sooner or later, as you press against these things in the culture, both good and indifferent and questionable, sooner or later, You're forced if you're a Christian to ask yourself, how do I identify myself as a Christian? What does that mean? What does it look like? I'm persuaded that one of the most insightful passages addressing that question is the one we've just read. How should Christians identify themselves? And this half chapter or so offers three principles for us to espouse. Number one, live at the right address. Number two, wear the right clothes. And number three, sing the right song. That's what the text says. First of all, have the right address. Verses 1 to 8. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. That's where you belong. That's your home, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The idea seems to be that Christ is already at the right hand of the Father. He's in the new heaven already. And you're identified with Christ so that when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of Christ. He sees sees you in Christ. That's where Christ is. That's what your address is too. Now, there are different ways of getting that idea across in Paul's letters. Ephesians and Colossians are especially strong in this respect. In Ephesians chapter 1, we come across an expression that is found five times in the New Testament, all in Ephesians. It's worth looking at those times. Ephesians 1, verse 3, to begin with. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Heavenly realms is the expression that shows up five times in the Bible, and all five are in Ephesians. The sphere of these blessings from Christ is the heavenly realms. Look at the next occurrence, the same chapter, verse 19, which is talking about the incomparably great power of God working in us to transform us. And then we read, 19b, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand In the heavenly realms. In other words, the power that is at work within us to transform us is the same power, it's the same species of power as as was made manifest when God raised Christ from the dead. Same power. And seated him in the heavenly realms. That's pretty straightforward. Christ died, was buried, he rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high to the Father's right hand in the heavenly realms. Again, chapter 2, verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. Now, that's a little harder to understand because at one level, I certainly have not been raised from the dead. Not yet. First Corinthians 15 urges me to look forward to that event, but at the moment, I, I'm not dead, let alone raised from the dead. I'm, I'm getting close, but I'm not dead yet and certainly haven't been raised from the dead, and yet this text says that I am to think of myself as raised from the dead. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. What is meant by that? Press on to chapter 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is, one of the things that is going on in the proclamation of the gospel is the confrontation of angelic powers, fallen angelic powers, in the heavenly realms. The sphere of conflict is not only on earth in this world, it's even in the heavenly realms. And again, chapter 6, verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that is against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is a cosmic struggle. So what is meant by these diverse references to the heavenly realms? Well, I'll tell you the best summary that I've heard. I picked it up from a friend of mine, and when you first hear it, you think, theological jargon. But once you've sorted out what the theological jargon is, it's really quite insightful and helps us understand what it means to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. My friend likes to say, this is an example of the spatial equivalence of inaugurated eschatology. Now, before that puts you off, think through very carefully what it means. The spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology. Start at the back end, eschatology. Eschatology is simply a word that talks about last things. It's it's the discourse about last things. It's the logos of the eschaton, hence eschatology, the, the word about the last things. Inaugurated eschatology recognizes that there are some things that belong to the end, the last things, that are already inaugurated now. They're not coming till the end, but they've started. It's inaugurated eschatology, and there's a great deal in the Christian gospel that is presented that way in the New Testament. For example, we're used to thinking that the final judgment of God comes at the end of the age. But there is a sense in which justification is precisely an instance of the inauguration of ultimate eschatology. Already God turns to broken people like you and me, to to sinful people, to guilty people, and says, you're just. I declare you to be just. Not because we are perfectly just, but because Christ bore my sin in his own body on the tree. His righteousness has been reckoned to me. My sin has been reckoned to him. And this has so satisfied God that God himself declares, Don Carson, you're just. That's an instance of inaugurated eschatology. But there are lots of other examples. We we know from many parts of the New Testament that our ultimate hope is the new heaven and the new earth resurrection existence. We're not there yet. That belongs to the end. It belongs to eschatology. But there is a sense in which we've got a down payment. The Holy Spirit is portrayed sometimes as the down payment of the ultimate inheritance. Already, He works to conform us to Christ, to make us like Him. And and the church is to be a kind of an announcement in advance of the community at the end. We're an outpost in time of what is coming at the end. This is inaugurated eschatology. That's the way the church is to live, with one foot deeply grounded in the new heaven and the new earth, which is still to come. And there are other instances of the same. Now, my friend says, these references to Heavenly dwellings and heavenly residences and the like are instances of the spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology. With inaugurated eschatology, you're measuring things along a time frame. We're pressing toward the end, but already before the end, things have started. They're inaugurated. It's along a time axis. But this is the spatial equivalent. That is, you're not there yet, but space has been moved around so that that final state has already begun now. Already, you have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The idea is that I am so identified with Christ, Christ is so identified with me, that when God looks at me, He sees me not parked in East Lansing, Michigan, so much as parked with Christ at the right hand of God that's where I belong, that's my address, that's my home, that's where I'm identified, that's where I must identify myself. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Wait wait a minute, I have been raised with Christ? Christ has been raised, but I won't be raised till the end. Mm, Yes, but there is a sense in which you are so identified with Christ that if he's been raised, You're raised with him. God sees you in that perspective. He identifies you that way. The Bible elsewhere tells us that we've been crucified with Christ. Well, literally, I've never been crucified. I I, I, I haven't died with Christ in some literal sense, and yet in a real sense, I have been crucified with Christ, as Galatians 2, 20 and 21 put it. I've been crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So I've I've died with Christ, I've identified with his death, I've been raised with Christ, I've I've been identified with his life, and already the future has claimed the present. It's inaugurated eschatology. It's the spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology. So, as a result, the apostle exhorts us, Set your mind, therefore, on things above, not on earthly things. That's your real home. Some of us have been brought up in homes where it's considered important to maintain the family honor, the family name, the the subculture that you live in. Don't do anything that brings embarrassment to the family name. Well, there is a sense in which Christians name the name of Christ. We're, We're identified with him. So set your mind on... Things above, that's your home address. Not on earthly things. For you died. Well, in one sense, they, they haven't died. But there's another sense in which they have died. Christ died for them. And their life is now his life. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So, what does this entail? What should we do about it? Verse 5. Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death is a strong verb. Murder. Take on these earthly sinful things and kill them off. What kind of things? Sexual immorality. Impurity. Lust. Which is going to say something about pornography. Kill it off. Evil desires and greed. Greed which is idolatry. Why is greed idolatry? Well, whatever you want the most becomes God for you. The thing might even be a good thing. But if this good thing that you want, let alone a bad thing, if this good thing that you want is what you want the most, then it's idolatry. It takes over as God in your life. Now, put to death your idolatry your greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves, kill off, murder, put to death, other such things, all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. In the new heaven and the new earth on the last day, when we have resurrection existence, we won't be passing on dirty jokes. Inconceivable. We're tied up with another existence. We would be bringing shame on our home address. And already that is our home address. Choose. The right address. Second, wear the right clothes. In verses 9, the controlling metaphor changes. It has to do with putting things off. It's a clothing expression. And putting things on, another clothing expression. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Verse 10 and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of, in the image of the Creator. Verse 10 therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. And verse 14 and over all these virtues, put on love. That is, over everything else, put on an overcoat called love, which binds it all together. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, this metaphor of taking things off and putting things on is a not uncommon one in Paul. In Ephesians 4, we read these words. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Take off those dirty clothes. To put off your old self. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So also here, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. That's looking at the change in clothing as bound up with your very conversion. At conversion, what you are doing is getting rid of the old clothes and putting on new clothes. But then as Paul goes on with his exposition, it's very clear that we we have an ongoing responsibility to take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. It's an ongoing privilege and obligation. And the first specific moral instruction that that entails, he points out in verse 11, is put off racism. Did you notice that? Verse 11? Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. If you have a congregation where all the brothers and sisters in Christ have put on the old self and put on the new self, there's no racism. It's inconceivable. Because in Christ, when you're wearing the new clothes, it's not like the old clothes with all of their biases and prejudices and and dislikes and sensitivities to offense. None of that. The entailment of putting off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes is a life without racism. But, but, but it, it, it's, it's not just that specific sin. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility. Have you ever gone to bed at night um, after a real snarky tiff with your spouse? You know it was her fault. Now, if I were female, I would say that the other way around. You know it was his fault. And you haven't listened to the scripture that tells us not to let the sun go down on our wrath. So we've gone to bed in a mighty sulk. The next morning you wake up. You've had not a bad night's sleep. And then you remember the night before. Now what clothes are you going to put on? Are you going to put on yesterday's dirty grubs? Smelly, stinky clothes from yesterday. Renew all the bitterness, score points, I'll fix her, I won't talk to her. Or are you going to put on new clothes? What do they look like? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility gentleness, and patience. That's an ongoing responsibility day by day, day by day, day by day. Because we've already made the decisive turning by God's grace, getting rid of our old clothes, putting on new ones, that it becomes an ongoing responsibility to put on the new clothes. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wear the right clothes. That's part of your self identity. The right address, the right clothes. Third, sing the right song. Verses 15 to 17. The gospel in these three verses is referred to by a variety of expressions, three times, once in each verse. Let the peace of Christ, that is, the peace that Christ gives, not just psychological well-being, but peace with God, transformation character, shalom, peace with God, the gospel. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ, verse 15, the peace of Christ, verse 16, the message of Christ, the gospel, rule in your heart. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, verse 17, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That really means in line with the gospel. What is bound up with the coming of Christ, who he is, what he came for? The gospel constrains things. Now, there is a segment of evangelicalism that somehow lives with the impression that the gospel is designed for outsiders. You preach the gospel to outsiders. For insiders, you don't preach the gospel. You preach discipleship. They don't need the gospel. They've got the gospel. What you need now is discipleship. But all you have to do is read through the New Testament quickly and look it up look up every instance of any word related to gospel, and you discover how often the emphasis is on applying the gospel to believers, to Christians. We're familiar with Ephesians 5, for example. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is the moral incentive to love your spouse is mandated by the gospel itself. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Or in this passage, forgive, verse 13, forgive as the Lord forgave you, not forgive because it's psychologically damaging not to forgive. Forgive because, well, you, you know, you, you, you want to get over this tiff and get on with life. For, forgive because you might have made a mistake. It's more than that. For the Christian, forgive us, Christ forgave you. It's a gospel mandate. And and, and that's why in many places in the New Testament, there's an emphasis simultaneously on what is unique about Christ's death that can't be duplicated in our lives. We're saved by Christ's death. And on the other hand, an emphasis on the moral exemplar of Christ's death. So, for example, in 1 Peter 2, we read at the end of the chapter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Here the emphasis on, is on Christ's unique death, a substitute sacrifice. He, he bore our sins. He, he took our guilt. He... he, he he saved us. That's what he did. But a few verses earlier, we read a different emphasis. To this you were called, that is, to suffering for no good reason. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you." In other words, the gospel comes to us and not only saves us by its unique substitution, but the gospel comes to us and teaches us how to live. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And it's within that framework that these three verses, Colossians 3, 15 to 17, not only stress the gospel, but come back three times to the matter of gratitude. Did you notice that? Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our lives, our gospel lives, are to be characterized by gratitude. And with all of this emphasis on singing, as you sing to one another through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, the songs we sing are characterized by gratitude. I've had occasion to meet quite a number of really excellent, faithful evangelists in many countries. I have never met a fruitful evangelist whose life is characterized by bitterness and whining. It is so unattractive. The bitter whining person may think that deep down in his or her life, he or she is projecting a kind of um, victim mentality. I'm more of a victim than you are. Pity me. No, no, the evangelists I know are characterized typically by gratitude. There is something winsome as well as godly about gratitude. When you meet people who live life gratefully, even though they're suffering from some painful disease or have been hit by bereavement and loss, when you meet such people and discover that they're full of gratitude before the Lord God, deep down you say, I'd like to be like that. So sing the right song. Not only have the right address and wear the right clothes, but sing the right song. For our lives are to be characterized by gratitude, gratefulness, because we do have so much for which to be grateful. We have the gospel blessings that are briefly alluded to in this verse. We've been reconciled with God. We have hope not only for this life, but for the life to come. We anticipate resurrection existence on the last day. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and opportunities for service. And for some of us, the service that we render is is having the right attitude amidst an extremely difficult life. Be grateful. Be grateful. I used to nurture bitterness to count up every slight. The world's a moral wilderness, and I have felt its blight. Self-pity ruled. Resentment reigned. No one understood my pain. I spiraled down in murky night, insisting that I had the right to hate and hate again. I am ashamed. O oh, Lord, forgive. But then the gospel taught me how to contemplate the cross. For there Christ died for me, and now I've glimpsed the bitter cost. He bore abuse and blows and hate. He did not retaliate. Triumphant malice reared and tossed blind rage at him, he never lost the love that conquers hate. O Lord, forgive, I am ashamed. To make no threat, to smile, forgive, to love, and not because I must, for Jesus showed me how to love and trust the one who's just to suffer wrong and feel the pain, certain that the loss is gain. Oh God, I want so much to trust, to follow Jesus on the cross, to love and love again. I am ashamed. Oh Lord, forgive. So how shall you identify yourself? Choose the right address. Wear the right clothes. Sing the right song. Let us pray. forgive us in our sinful inconsistencies and rebellions, draw us closer to the Christ that we may not only more greatly appreciate his love for us that led him to bear our sin in his own body on the tree, but give to us a desire to suffer with him that we may reign with him, to identify with him in the cross in the resurrection, in his life of glory even now, so that we join with Christians across the centuries who have said, yes, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.